Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover. Today we have one final session with my colleague Lin Yan about the 12th century Chinese poet Li Qingzhao. Lin Yan, in the previous two episodes, we talked first about the famous short poem with the maid and the crabapple tree, written in the poet's younger, happier days. And then we looked at the poem about the cold ash in the incense burner, written in her 40s, not long before Li and her husband had to flee Shandong and go south. But this final poem that you've chosen was written in the final decade of her life, wasn't it? Yes. She and her husband had 26 good years together, initially living a life of refinement in one of China's great periods of art and literature. By then, the North Song dynasty began to collapse. In the year 1127, an ethnic group called the Zhechen invaded Shandong, and Li and Zhao had to hurriedly pack up their stuff and flee in front of the advancing army. They loaded their possessions onto a string of carts, but most of the stuff was pillaged and lost on the journey, wasn't it? Yes, it was an extremely traumatic experience for both of them. Their home in Qingzhou, where they had left most of their collection, was burned to the ground. Most of the precious manuscripts and rubbings they had assembled over so many years, with such painstaking care, went up in flames. And bit by bit, the remnants that they had been able to take with them when they headed south were lost, stolen, scattered. This loss of their collection was a terrible wound for both of them. Jaw died not long after. And when he died, his huge art catalogue hadn't been published. So Li Qingzhao devoted herself to editing and proofreading his manuscript. Yes. When the work was finally published in 1132, Li was almost 50 and her husband had been dead for three years. She added to the book a postscript in which she describes the terror of their chaotic flight southwards to Zhejiang province. I've read excerpts from that postscript in translation. How do you react to it? I love the fact that it's so personal. You might expect a postscript like this to be an academic explanation of the art that they had lovingly catalogued over so many years. But it's not like that at all. Instead, it's an intensely personal account of the events that occurred. It's a reflection on loss. It's about accumulating something dear to one's heart and then losing it. It is honest, painful, almost naked narration. Li Qingzhao gives a detailed account of how they accumulated the art and books and how they lost it piece by piece. And then she asked why it was so important to her and why she couldn't just let it go. She writes, 
人王公人得知，又胡诌道。It's a dense sentence in which she likens the ordeal she lived through to a person losing their bow. This is an allusion to a very famous story about Prince Chu, who had lost his bow. It's like losing something precious, and then another person picking it up and walking off with it. To me, the words convey a confusion acceptance of loss, together with the personal pain of that loss. The emotions are intense and raw. These musings. Laden with pain and loss, moved me very much.、Mm. She recalls playing a game with her husband, doesn't she, about who had a better knowledge of the books and historical records they had collected. Yes, it's a very affectionate memory. Li Qingzhao says that she and her husband had amassed all these valuable books, and sometimes they would play a memory game together. Each of them, in turn, would cite an event, an inscription, and then the other would have to try to guess in which book it was recorded, the chapter, even the exact page. The winner would get to drink tea first. Li usually won, and she remembers standing up, holding her tea aloft in triumph, and then laughing so hard that it spilled over her gown and over the books. This image of husband and wife chatting, teasing each other, laughing and spilling tea on their books, became a symbol of marital happiness, of finding your soulmate, a marriage of equals.、Oh, it really is a lovely image, and what a contrast with the image of their parting on the riverbank some twenty years later. By that point, they had already moved south. Their collection had been. Partially lost, partially scattered, and Zhao, her husband, who had never been very successful in his government career, was hankering after a new position. So when he was offered、uh, a new post by the emperor, he rushed off to the court as soon as he heard the news, perhaps fearing that the offer might be revoked. And so this meant a hasty, almost wild farewell. Li evokes a scene where she is on the river in a small boat, and Zhao has clambered out and is on the shore, about to mount his horse and gallop away. Everything's in a bit of a panic. She describes the scene like this: "Bei zhi zhi hu zhou, guo que shang dian, sui zhu jia chi yang, du fu zhao." 六月十三日，始复旦。舍舟坐岸上，隔衣暗金，精神如虎，目光烂烂射人。望舟中告别，余意甚恶，呼曰：“如传闻城中缓急，奈何？”即手腰应曰：“从众，必不得已，先弃辎重。”赐衣被，赐书册卷轴，赐骨器。独所谓宗器者，可自复报。与身俱存亡，勿忘之。Dressed in coarse clothes, with a handkerchief around his head, 
his mood that of a tiger on the prowl. His eyes darting and flashing, he looked toward our boat and bid farewell. I was in a terrible state of mind and shouted to him, What shall I do if I hear the town is threatened? And then she writes, Jao pointed at me and answered from afar, Go with the crowd. If you must, discard the household belongings first. Then our clothes. Then the books and paintings. And then the ancient vessels. But the ritual vessels. Be sure to take them with you wherever you go. Live or die with them. Don't forget. You can imagine the stress, the fear, the pain, the mix of emotions. On his way to that new posting, he died. So that flight to the south in 1127 marks a real turning point in both their lives. For her, there had been the happy before, now it was a difficult after. Yeah. You were saying that in this postscript, she reflects on loss. And she seems to recognize, doesn't she, that their passion for collecting art had brought trouble and stress into their lives and sadness too. We alluded to this in the previous episode when we were discussing the poem about the cold ash in the incense burner. In that postscript, she says something to the effect that what had started as an amusement turned into a source of vexation. Yes, that line comes right after the anecdote of the spilled tea. They have collected all these books, set up cabinets and bookshelves, and made strict rules about using them and keeping them clean. Of course, no more spilling tea on the books. <laughs> In a sense, the books start to own them instead of them owning the books. Tell me, of her later poems, there's one you particularly like, isn't there? I really like the poem, Luo Ri Rongjin which she begins with a description of golden sunset enclosed in clouds. Yeah, it's a poem where she looks back over the span of her life, isn't it? And there's a reference to the Lantern Festival. We should explain that Lantern Festival occurs on the 15th day after the start of the Chinese New Year. It's a festive time when kids go out in the streets at night with their paper lanterns. What does Lantern Festival mean for you? Uh, do you have a favorite memory from your own childhood? My favorite memory of the Lantern Festival is actually the food. The sticky rice balls we call yuan xiao. You can boil them or fry them. Both are very good. It is auspicious food. We call them yuan xiao because yuan means round in Chinese and round denotes togetherness. These sticky rice balls signify the good fortune of being together with your loved ones. Mm. How different would it have been for Li celebrating Lantern Festival in 
Kaifeng in the year 1100? Well, in one sense, they were very lucky because during the Song Dynasty, people had a seven-day holiday for Lantern Festival. But at that time, Zhao Mingcheng would still have been a Taishuesheng, the equivalent of an imperial college student. So he would only have had one day off for the festival. He probably spent the day going to Qianguo Temple to look for antiques, and maybe he went out at night with the Qingzhou for lanterns. The evening of Lantern Festival was a magical time. It was a time for young ladies to dress up, to go out at night to enjoy the lanterns, the crowds, the festivity. It was a sparkly, bubbly, romantic time. Spring in the air, new hopes, new dreams, full of light because of all the lanterns. But of course, in this point, this memory is ruined around with sadness. Because now Li Qingzhou is an older woman, probably near the final decade of her life, conscious of the loss of her youth and looks, no longer willing to go out at night. Mm. Well, let's listen to a reading of the poem in Chinese by Helen Hu, and then a version in English read by Tina Georgieva. Lu 中州盛日归门多暇记得偏重三五Against a screen of clouds like white jade, the sun sets like melted gold. Where do I stand? A pale mist greens the willow trees as a flute plays the tune of plum blossoms falling, harbingers of spring. Lantern Festival is a gladsome time, but... I am not fooled by this balmy weather. At any moment, there could be wind and rain. A handsome carriage pulls up outside. Fellow poets, drinking companions, invite me out. I hesitate. Then turn them down. In the carefree days of my youth, in splendid Kaifeng, there was so much fun in the women's apartments. How we loved the 15th. 
We sauntered along in twos and threes, wearing plumbed bonnets, hairpins woven with gold threads, each trying to outdo the others. But now, gaunt, haggard, wrinkled, my hair gone gray, I am unwilling to go out at night. Better to stay silent. Behind the bamboo window shade, listening to the light-hearted chatter outside. I know you love that opening description of the sun setting like molten gold. Yes, the view is presented in just eight characters: four about the sunset and four about the clouds that close it in. For me, the extreme tightness of language. Contrasts with the magnificence of the view. The image is of the setting sun hanging precariously over the edge of the earth, and the dying rays reflecting golden of the clouds. Against this vast backdrop, the poet turns inwards and asks the question, "Where am I?" The question is really, "Where am I in time?" or "Where am I in the span of my life?" If you like, as the poem moves on, we see her as a younger woman dressing up to go out with her friends to celebrate the Lantern Festival on the fifteenth day of the Chinese New Year. We also see her decline an invitation at a time when old age and sadness have begun to weigh her down. She is afraid to go out at night because of her green hair. For fear that her lines and wrinkles will be revealed in the light, she prefers to remain behind the bamboo curtain, listening to the chatter outside. The poem started with a vast open panorama, but it ends with a constricted domestic scene: a haggard older woman listening hungrily from behind the curtain that separates her from the outside world. Where people are talking and laughing, and where the sun is setting in all its magnificence.、Mm, wow, great description! Yes, it's a wonderful poem. As you say, that image of the woman standing behind the bamboo shade, listening to the chatter outside—it's it's very moving. She's aged, as we say in English. She is in the sunset of her life. Linnea, do you think it's Preposterous to see in this setting sun a kind of self-tribute. What do you mean? Well, it's been a brave life, hasn't it? And a life of astonishing achievement. I mean, there were very few women poets at that time. The field of letters was almost entirely dominated by men, and not only did Lee write a series of Brilliant poem. She co-developed the greatest Chinese art catalogue of the 12th century, a catalogue which already had a nationwide reputation by the time it appeared in print. So, she was a keen observer of events inside the country. She was a keen literary critic. She was very conscious of the Chinese poetic tradition. And she was in no way afraid to voice her view and even criticise older poets. She was 
a woman, it seems to me, who forged her own path. She took risks. As we say in modern English, she, she pushed the boundaries. And she lived moments of joy and bliss as well as moments of heartbreak and loss. In a sense, she is the magnificent setting sun, don't you think? In a way, I agree with you. When I first started, I mean, when I first started to read about her and prepare for this podcast, I asked myself, if I had to use one sentence to sum up Li Qingzhao, what would it be? I came up with, she is a woman with immense heart. For a woman confined to the narrow family life of the Song Dynasty, Li Qingzhao has immense heart. This immense heart gives her work a character, a vision, and an inclusiveness that is rare, if not unique, in the long march of Chinese classic poetry. So in a way, she is the magnificent setting sun. And her big heart is what makes this conversation possible. Lin Yan, on behalf of both of us, I want to say, first of all, a very big thank you to our three voices, Helen Hu from Shandong, who read in Chinese, and Tina Georgieva and Mick Greer, who recorded in English here in Portugal, because they gave us really genuinely excellent interpretations. But most of all, I want to say a very big thank you to you for taking the time to talk to us about this amazing poet. For me, honestly, it's been a terrific journey and it's been great fun to contrast our different readings and different insights. The pleasure is mine. This has been such a learning experience for me too. I mean, Lee is a famous poet and a familiar one. And like every other Chinese, I studied her lines as a pupil at school. But this expedition into her poems and her life has revealed so much that is new to me. Thank you for all the questions. It was really fun to check. Thanks, Dan. Thank you.